So chapter 2, verse 1 through 52, is the next section, the birth and childhood of Jesus. The birth narrative of Jesus reveals that Jesus is truly unique as Yahweh's son. This is the first mention of Messiah in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. So the word Messiah has not been used yet. It's just been kingship and salvation. Revealing that he has finally arrived, but not in the way that everyone anticipated him. So Luke has intentionally kept the word Messiah out, even though he's used the definition and the lingo and the idea, ideology all around it until the birth, because it's only in the birth that it's like, now he's here. Now he's here. So chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when... Quirinus was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea in the city of David called Bethlehem because he was in the house and the family line of David. Once again, we get a bunch of political names in order to root this story in an actual historical political time period. And so the first name we're introduced to is Caesar Augustus. Now, we kind of already talked about him, and he's well-known. Um, but Caesar Augustus was the current emperor of this time. And remember, there was all this chaos before him, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Cassius, and, and Pompey. And there was all this civil war and all this chaos and that kind of stuff, and assassinations. And basically, when Caesar Augustus came, he brought peace. Now, granted, peace under the boot of Rome. I will crush you if you make any problems. And you're going to have peace because you're scared out of your mind of what I would do. But he brings peace for whatever reason, for whatever way you want to think of it, for the first time ever in a long time. And he's ruling over for a very, very long time over the land, and he's a common name. And the other thing that's interesting is when he became emperor, he declared himself the king of kings and the lord of lords, which was a title that Cyrus III gave when he, over the Persian Empire. And when it was announced, it was said that he was bringing good news. Your king has arrived. Or the gospel. The word gospel. He says, I am the gospel. And so this idea of kingship and gospel and all that kind of stuff, what God is doing here is that he's going to use the same titles that Caesar Augustus is using. You have to understand that we think of the gospel or king of kings and lord of lords and the savior of all mankind are unique to Jesus in the gospels but they're actually Roman political terms that were being used by Roman emperors to establish their sovereignty over everybody. And so what God is doing in this Bible here, what Luke is doing is he's taking all those titles and placing them onto Jesus saying he is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's truly the savior of the world. He is truly the gospel, the good news. And he's owning this. And what's interesting is that Caesar Augustus has a census that requires everybody to return to their hometown in order to be recorded. Right under the very nose of Caesar Augustus, the ultimate king is being born. The one who believes that he has a reign on everything and everything is under control is going to lose absolute control when it comes to Jesus the Messiah. And not only that, it is his own edict that is unknowingly going to send Jesus to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies of Malachi that a child will be born in Bethlehem. What you see here is like when the epistles say that God brings kings into power and lowers them down. And 
unison with what the First Testament had said, that God brings kings up and lowers and brings them down. Here we have God as the true puppet master over Caesar Augustus and implementing policy in order to make things happen for his son, the Messiah. And the real important part here is that Israel will be renewed, not under Caesar Augustus, but under Jesus. This was the first restoration of Carinus. Carinus is not well documented outside of the Bible. Anytime anybody's not mentioned historical documents, scholars are like, there you go. The Bible's lying to you. You can't trust it. And it's like, just because you haven't discovered them yet does not mean that they do not exist. And, and you would think eventually they would like stop saying this because they said, Solomon never existed. He, they're making that all up. There's a legend. And then they found like all of his like stables and they found like military barns and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, okay. And it, it had Solomon's name over it, over it. They're like, David never existed. And then they found documents with his seals and that kind of stuff that made it clear as king. And they're like, yeah, but Pilate never existed. And then they found this huge stone that would have gone over a building that said Pilate, procurator of Rome. And they just keep saying this. And like I said earlier, you can't dig up all of Israel and force everybody to leave. So Digging is going to take time. Discovery is going to take time. But it's important to understand that nothing is proven the Bible wrong when it comes to archaeology. We're going to camp on this a little bit because critics have to be addressed, whether you are interested in all this technicality or not. So some are, some are not. Some have argued that this census is not rooted in history. And the reason is that there's no historical record of an empire-wide census. Now, that's a legitimate claim. If you have Caesar Augustus, who's the most powerful emperor that the world's ever seen at this time period, and Rome has spread across, controlled more, not the most land that any empire has ever controlled, but the most politically strategic and the most politically powerful empire that the world has ever seen up to this time period. Many empires like Persia and Greece and, and Babylon have controlled more land than Rome before them. But nobody has controlled all of the Mediterranean, all of the four sides of the Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean is the center of the world, economically, politically, and worldview-wise. And to this day, it still is. And so whoever controlled all the Mediterranean has truly given them more power. This is why the Mongols were pushing so hard across from Asia towards Europe to control the Mediterranean. And so that's where true political power and world influence comes from. It may, it's a legitimate accusation to say that not only that, but this empire is one of the most well-documented empires, like their historical records, their political decisions, and all that kind of stuff, that you would think a world empire census going from Europe all the way into Syria would be a would be well documented. That would cover, that's every, I mean, those hundreds of countries. And they would be documented somewhere in there. And so this is a legitimate complaint. Now, for, histor for geographical purposes, Syria is the entire eastern coast of the Mediterranean. So it's everything from what we know as modern-day Turkey all the way down to Egypt. So Curinus is the governor of all of that, that entire strip of land all the way to the Tigris Euphrates and down into the desert. The other complaint that a lot of people have is there doesn't seem to be a record of Caesar Augustus when he did census. He never required people to return to their original homes, their original hometowns in order to do this. 
And so these two things have been lodged against Christianity and specifically the Bible for this not being accurate. Because we don't have an actual record of this yet or maybe ever, it's hard to really conclusively and confidently say why this is wrong. But remember, just because people can throw two things against you doesn't mean that's an exhaustive understanding. Life is way more complicated than just to be able to say, well, there's no example, there's no example. There you go. Okay, because life is just way more complicated. So scholars have presented some ideas here. First, Augustus is known to have instituted three census during this period. So three, not a world empire census, but three different senses that were happening during this period of Jesus' life. There is never one census that has encompassed the whole empire at once. Periodic census cycled through regions such as Syria, Gaul, and Spain, and it would not be unlikely to see similar ones in Palestine. Luke's description that such a census was empire-wide may reflect the ongoing census. So when Luke is saying this is an empire-wide census, He's may may not thinking like everybody in the first week of January in the entire empire had a census, but rather that this part of the empire was having a census in January and February, this part of the empire was having it this time and this time, and then through a couple of periods of years. And in that sense, it is an empire-wide census as it kind of circulates and moves through. And... I don't have a lot of good analogies for this, but think of the Google cameras on the car. So like Google is doing a worldwide photography and mapping of all of the world and loading it up into their databases. Though this is not happening all in the same week. They're just gradually moving throughout the world and taking pictures. And one can say this is a worldwide mapping, even though it's not happening all at once. And so that's a very legitimate way to look at it. Second, though Quirinus was not a Roman legate or governor or authority of Syria at the time of the census of Luke 2, he could have been legate at the completion of the census. There are some suggestions, there are some evidence that we have discovered Quirinus, but he's dated at a different time period. And what this is arguing is that maybe he doesn't match up with the dating, but it could be that the census he puts into motion happened during his reign, but when he's no longer ruling, it's still going. It's still happening. And we, we know that. I mean, you vote for a president, and he becomes president, and many of the things that he puts into action are all happening in the next term of the next president. And, it's, and people are like, well, see, there you go. This president's awesome. He makes this and this and this and this happen, unlike the first one. It's like, well, actually, it was that previous president that had all that happen. It's just you're not seeing the evidence of that because welcome to government until at least four or five years later. And so it could be that even though this technically was instituted by him, the results of it aren't happening until after his reign. So it is possible that previous legate of Syria, Varius, began the census or that Quranus is finishing the census, even though he did not give it historically attaching his name to the census. Such a census would have taken time and could have overlapped administrations. Also, a coin has been found in Quirinus' name on it, 
which places him as proconsul of Syria and Sicily from 11 BC until after Herod's death, suggesting that he was a legate of Syria on two separate occasions. Another option is that it is possible grammatically to take the word protate to mean prior to or before this census of Quranus. So these words could be translated as this happened before him or it happened during his time. There's evidence that he had two different administrations. Third, Joseph's return to Bethlehem may be explained by the fact that sometimes the Romans, under the Pax Ramona, allowing people to kind of regulate themselves a little bit under the Peace of Rome, allowed a census to be taken on the basis of local customs. The Jewish culture would, in fact, require an ancestral registration. There are examples of this in other regions of the empire, such as the official governmental order dated of 104 AD. Very possible that Caesar Augustus says, I want a census. And as it moves through the land, it comes Quirinus. And Quirinus then begins to make this happen, or he's continuing the census that's happening. And because this is, remember, they don't have computers to handle all this kind of stuff. They don't have like vehicles to transport people. There's no a broad ballots or absentee ballots and that kind of stuff. There's none of that. So it's very much likely that they're basically just saying, okay, Jewish people, you're going to be in charge of making this census happen. We will have a few people making sure that it's done right and it's done well, but you can do it according to your customs. Just make sure it happens. And the Jews are known for making people return back to their hometowns in order to register. Because remember, it's not like we can, like in the movies, we're like, doo, 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 and they're like, oh, here's who he is, and this is his entire past, and da da da, which is not totally accurate, but uh, it's not that easy to bring up everybody's profiles. But the records would have been kept in hometowns. I mean, there are no computers. So somebody would have written down your birth, and they would have written down your family connections, and they roll up in the scroll and put in a piece of pottery, and then they would store it in that city, and there would be no copying of it, and there would be no dissemination of information. And so it's very possible the Jews are like, the only way we can do this accurately is if everybody goes back to their hometown. These three things are very valid and very strong points that it's not just as simple as say, there's no record of Caesar. Lots of hands would have been involved. And we can't make the assumption that everybody in every culture and every time period of history have done things the way that we do things. That's called cultural snobbery. Or that we expect them to have done it our way, or should do it our way. That's cultural snobbery. So these are possibilities to help explain that. Joseph and Mary are going to travel to from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is about 90 miles, 1990 miles. And that's a long journey on foot. It's a long journey on foot. And unlike the movies and the cartoons, there's, there's no, like, she's about ready to give birth on the road. There's no, like, she's riding this donkey or any of that kind of stuff. Like, most likely the donkey's carrying their food supply, not her. And, and women, see, that makes for drama. And the Bible is not a dramatic book. It's not trying to, like, make you sit on the edge of your seat and wondering whether the bad guy or whatever is going It doesn't do that. It's just, this is life. And, and, and the Bible doesn't need to create drama to keep your attention because it's not interested in entertaining you. It's interested in revealing who he is and how you can know him. Granted, there's plenty of drama in the Bible because life is dramatic at times, but it doesn't create it just for the sake of creating it. It's more interested in facts and details. 
he's returning back to Bethlehem in order to connect Bethlehem with David, in order to show Jesus qualified as the Messiah. And then second, he's presented Jesus to be humble beginnings in order to deduce the theme that Jesus' identification with the poor is rejection. So when we get to chapter 4, Luke is really going to establish that Jesus has come for the poor, the outsiders, and the rejected. And so by sending Jesus to Bethlehem, he's doing a double thing. First, he's connecting Jesus to King David and prophecy. But at the same time, Bethlehem is one of the dinkiest, most pathetic cities in all of this region. And so this also is introducing his humble beginnings and why he has every right to say, I can connect to you and I know what it's like to be poor and outcasted and rejected because these are my beginnings as well. And so they make their journey down there. So verse 5, he went to be registered with Mary, who was promised a marriage to him. And who was expecting a child? And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now this word that he was engaged, the word is engagement, comes from a Greek word that suggests that not that they were married yet, rather they have not consummated their marriage. So the idea is that they have taken their vows and they are married, um, but in God's eyes, it doesn't matter whether the state has proclaimed you married or not. In God's eyes, the two things that make you married are a public confession before the community of people of your commitment and sex consummation. And when those two things happen, you're married in God's eyes, which is why one of the reasons why if you say, hey, I'll be committed to you, but you don't consummate it, you're not technically married. And if you're just sleeping around with a bunch of people, but there's no public com- confession before the community of committee, commitment, then you're not technically married. Now, yes, Paul makes it very clear that you've yoked yourself to that person through sexual union, and there is a connection there that will be forever there, but not a marriage connection. And so the G- point of emphasizing that though they're legally married, public confession before the community of people bound together They're not married in a consummation sense in order to emphasize the fact that Jesus' birth is truly miraculous. It's truly of the Spirit of God. And that Joseph is being obedient to this angelic visit. I'm going to ruin all your nativity scenes. Well, I'm not. The people who created nativity scenes ruined the biblical visual of what truly happened. The word in here, there is no evil, bad innkeeper who won't let pregnant women into his hotel. And like, like, there's no, like, I actually saw this movie once, this cartoon where, like, he was, like, mean. He was like, no. And they're like, but please, my wife is going to give birth. He's like, I don't care. If you don't have money, we don't have room. Like, they're like, but just a little room. They're like, no. It's like, you mean man. So it's like, there is none of that. The, the, The other gospels just say that there was no room. That's it. But when it says there's no room in the inn, this comes from a Greek word called pandochian. And this word pandochian can mean a whole wide variety of things. It can mean a hotel. It can mean like a bed and breakfast where people take you into their homes. It can mean a, a divided room where like somebody stays in your spare bedroom kind of a thing. It can mean all different things. But there, you have to understand commercial inns Holiday Inns, the Hiltons, they didn't really totally exist in the ancient world, not in the way we think of it. The only people, the only, remember, 
Bethlehem has about 100 people in it. Okay? Or, sorry, Bethlehem has about 100 families. 100 families. We're not talking about a booming city that can have a lot. There's not a lot of people visiting 100 families. Okay? You, you think about, like, there's probably 100 families in your neighborhood. And how many times are they having their family and guests staying with them on a regular basis? Now, granted, it's the census, but the census happens one time in your entire lifetime. You're not going to build a hotel just for that. And so, and plus, when you're going back, you're going back to your hometown, which means you're staying with family. I mean, you're not there for a graduation or a football game or the beach. You're there to be with your family for the census. So a, a town of 100 people aren't going to have a commercial hotel or an inn. And even then, in the big cities, they're rare. And in the big cities, when they do have commercial ends in some kind of fashion, it's think more like Old West saloons, where it's just a small building where it's mostly about gambling and alcohol and prostitution, with a few rooms that you might that the random guests might come in. Because in the ancient world, it's all about hospitality. If people were coming in, what would happen is people would say, come and stay with me. It was more like a bed and breakfast thing where people would say, come and stay with me. Because to not invite strangers to your town in, even in a huge corrupt town where everybody's just looking out for themselves, is considered anathema and the Eastern mentality of hospitality. Even today, if you go over to the Middle East, they'll invite you in. I've had Muslims invite us in and give us tea knowing we're christians and that kind of stuff and not agreeing with us uh, they don't know us we're not the same ethnicity we're not the same culture we're not the same religion and 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 they invite us in and serve us tea and talk to us and and it was considered unthinkable not to invite us in they saw us walking and they're like come and for them that's huge so there's not really a huge need for that in a community oriented hospitable culture and mentality they do exist, but not like we think, and definitely not in Bethlehem. So this word can actually refer to a, a spare bedroom or something like that. Now, the way that houses worked in the ancient world is, one, they were made out of stone. Or you lived in a cave. That doesn't mean you're like some like caveman the barbarian or whatever, or some whatever. Caves were very prevalent in Israel and around this region. And if you're going to build a house out of stone... How much different is that than a cave? And why build a house out of stone when the cave is already built for you? Because remember, it's not like they're just going to say, hey, I want a giant house, and I want to remodel it, and I want a room addition. People don't do that. They're mostly working to survive. They're not thinking about room additions necessarily. And so they would have this cave. And so people stay in caves, which is also Jesus was not a carpenter. Okay, I'm sorry. He's not a carpenter. The only things that were made out of wood of that time period would be like a few wood dishes and spoons and that kind of stuff. Maybe some furniture. But most people sat on rugs and ate off of low tables or just rocks or something. And the wood that was on the roof of your house to hold the thatch. So, But anybody can just cut a tree down and notch things out and put it on. Jesus was a stonemason. And he built homes out of stone. The tools of the trade were stonemasonry and hammers and chisels and that kind of stuff. That's what he did. And that word carpenter is another mistranslation because the people who were first translating the Bible were Europeans. 
And they like interpreting everything through their culture. That's called cultural snobbery, our phrase for the day. So this is an inn. And what they would do is they would, their, their room, their cave, their house would probably be about the size of your living room. Most people's living rooms, about 30 feet long and about maybe 15 to 20 feet wide. And that was their entire house. And they would divide their house into three sections. The first section that you would enter into, the first third, would be the living space. They might have a loft, like a half loft. So I know I reference this a lot, but I watch a lot of this show and it's so relevant to our culture, or not to our culture, but that culture. But Little House on the Prairie, if you've ever seen Little House on the Prairie, they have a loft where the kids kind of sleep up there. And then the loft doesn't cover the entire width of the house, but it's just a partial. So they might have that. But their loft is even higher than most people's lofts in the ancient world. And so remember, the average height was about five foot three. So you don't need to build your loft that high. So they would have this loft. And so in that first third of your living room, you would live, eat, cook, and sleep in that area. And so you would sleep and you would roll up your mats and you would move them to the side. And then that's where you would work. Now, Granted, most of the time you'd be cooking. If you go to Israel and you go to archaeological diggings, most of their kitchens were actually outside. Like think of a, a really nice grilling station that wealthy people have in their backyard with a sink and running water and that kind of stuff. That's what they have. So they do it because it hardly rains and it doesn't snow. Okay, when we were in Nazareth, it snowed. And I snow, I mean somebody took talcum powder and dumped it on the road. That's what it looked like. And they were like freaking out because that was their first snow in 20 years. Okay, it was like, you can't even slip on this. It's warm most of the time. Their living rooms were usually on their roof. They would use their roof, like if you've seen Born Identity and they're doing the roof chases and that kind of stuff. Like that kind of stuff. And so they would live on the roof and they would cook outside and their kitchen would be outside. They would eat outside. They would work outside. So you don't really need a lot of living space. It was usually only for night and the dark time. And most of the time in the dark, you're sleeping. And so that's where they would work. Then the middle room, the middle half of your, the middle third of your living room was storage. That's where they would store grain. They would store like farming tools. They would store um, extra cloth or whatever they were working on, pottery, utensils, wood maybe, all kinds of stuff. And then the back section was where the animals were, the barn. And you're like, oh, that would stink. Yeah, but people don't take baths. And they all stink all the time. So, so if you've ever gone like to a farm where people truly are a farm and they very rarely take baths, you just kind of get used to the smell and don't notice it after a while, especially when you're filthy and smelly too. And animals are everywhere all the time. And so you bring the animals in. And the thing is, is this is your HVAC system. Because as the animals come in, they produce lots of body heat. And the body heat would heat the cave and when it's only the size of a living room at night it does drop pretty cold at night even though it's warm during the day this would be a natural heating and then they would take their animals back out so when it says there was no room for the inn what it most likely means is the divided room the divided house so when guests would come over you would put them in the spare bedroom or the storage room that middle third but because there's no room because so many people are coming back home to their home houses, and for the census, a lot of those rooms are filled up now. And most likely, Mary and Joseph were then brought through the living room, through the guest bedroom, and into the back manger. So they're only about two feet away 
from everybody else. And yes, it's a little stinky, but everybody else is stinky because they're only two feet away from all the animals. And that's mostly like it, how it happened. And in fact, there's really good evidence that the cave that the Catholics have commemorated as the birth cave of Jesus is truly the right cave that Jesus was born in. The problem is the Catholics like to decorate everything with their art, and it doesn't feel like you're sitting, standing in like a real cave. It feels more like you're standing in a, it's kind of gaudy too, in my opinion, um, memorial to something. So this is how it worked. Now, that gives you a whole different impression when the shepherds come and they're like, hey, we heard about the birth of this guy, right? And they're like, oh, where is he? Oh, we're not here for you, this family. And they go back, oh, we're not here for you. Imagine somebody just showing up at your front door and they're like, hey, we're here. And you're like, I don't know you. I know we're, we're here for like the guest of your guest. Okay, we're not here for your guests that have shown up for Christmas party. We're here for the guests that they brought uninvited. And we want to see them and hang out with them because they got a kid that's really cool and awesome. Okay, and you're like, oh, okay, come on in. <laughs> they just like trample through. Okay, so this is the idea that's being painted here. And so he's born into this manger about two feet away from everybody else. And they're staying there. Now, eventually, when the census is over with and people moved away, they probably would be moved more into the spare bedroom, which gives rise to the Magi, because the Magi came about two years later, a year, year, two later. So they wouldn't be staying in that manger anymore. For an accurate nativity scene, you should have a stone building, and it should be divided into three sections. You should have some random people in the first, the random people in the middle, and then the animals of Mary and Joseph in the thing. And then on your, this is on your mantle. And then on your kitchen counter, on the other side of your house, you can put the Magi because they're about a year away from coming and visiting. And then maybe around January, you can boot everybody out and then put the Magi there at the end of January. And then you'll, you'll have an accurate manger scene, nativity scene at that point. So that would be more accurate. So. Next Christmas, I expect all of you to be historically accurate or you're going to answer before God for that, for your biblical um, inaccuracy. So I'm just joking, by the way, for those who are on Zoom and don't see my face as well. So <laughs> They wrap him in strips of cloth. These strips of cloth are only used for two purposes, the birth of animals and the burial of humans. And there's a, a, a book ending that happens to Jesus' life because his beginnings are so humble, he's shoved in the back room of somebody's house, being birthed with all these animals, and they're wrapped in cloth that you would wrap animals in. And there's strips of cloth that you would use to wrap them up. And then, at the end of his life, he's going to be buried in these strips of cloth. Not the exact ones, but the same idea. Because the strips of cloth make it easier to wrap the people up and then put them away. And so there's a foreshadowing here that the way that he's coming into the world is the way that he's going to leave the world, so to speak. Remember, for Luke, everything is pointing to the cross. Well, that's true of every gospel writer, but especially Luke. 